Great, thanks uh, for joining us, uh, Mazen Nahawi from uh, Karma. Uh, thanks for uh, our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Talks with T. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, my privilege. Um, I think you and I have had uh, maybe an hour of total interaction, um, but something about uh, our coffee was very uh, magnetic, uh, and I just felt an affinity uh, towards you. I just felt that there's from that short coffee, I, I felt I already learned a lot from you. And by the end of it, I think it was just a cold out, uh, cold outreach. Actually, uh, Ahmed Nahawi had referred us, um, and by the end of it, I'm like, okay. Mazin needs to be on the show and you're very gracious with your time so thank you for well, that thank you I really appreciate it uh, wonderful to be here and I agree it was good to meet and I definitely felt uh, the, the energy and the alignment and so you end up going into journalism school um, how do you compare and contrast what you were going through as a student studying the subject matter versus business school how, how did it feel right really good advantage of being at journalism school uh, at northeastern was it was one of the early adopters of what is now known as co-op education which means you have to work to graduate okay so my homework wasn't you know go back to my room and read a book or go to the library and write a paper it was go down to the mayor's office and interview someone why the lighting or the sewage system in Roxbury is messed up. Yeah. And that's how I like to learn. Mm. It's interesting that now, 30 years later, countries like Finland and Estonia and even here in the UAE are starting to realize putting people in a classroom 10 hours a day isn't a good idea. Mm. Get them into practical education. Yeah. Let them learn. Let them talk. Let them interact. Northeastern did that 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago. And I loved learning that way. It made it easy for me. It made it fun for me. And um, I knew at that moment I'd be more than happy to be in that career. It's amazing. And um, if you kind of think about uh, a comment you made earlier, you started to develop some sense of purpose, some sense of vision for your life. When... When did that vision, purpose really crystallize into the, into the version it would eventually become? Obviously, these things continue to evolve, but the North Star, to a large extent, may remain the same. So, You're right. It's a good question. And I think you need to differentiate in purpose between an evolving tactical purpose and a North Star, the way you described it. I think my North Star, if you will, is a desire to help people. Mm. Doing that homework, going down to interview a clerk at the mayor's office and find out why there were infrastructure problems in Roxbury. If I'd gone down there because I had to write a paper, I'd be bored. But I lived near Roxbury and I knew what the environment was like. And I went and I looked at people and talked to them and how they lived. And I knew that my homework could actually help them. Mm. And that really, I would imagine, was one of many sparks which continued to lead me towards the idea of helping people. And anywhere you go in a corporate environment, you find mission, vision, values. 
on the walls, on your laptop, on your desktop, uh, in the bathroom. Um, but I don't think we all need to overcomplicate it. Yeah. Just help people. If your product helps people, mm. it's a good product. Mm. If your service helps people, it is a good service. Mm. Don't try to force your product or service down their throat. Mm. You can create and invent and invent a new product or service. The key is that it helps people. Mm. And I think that has been a guiding purpose, whether on a social, personal, or corporate level. In terms of, you know, day-to-day purpose, that changes a lot over time. Um, in my company today, our purpose has continued to evolve. Mm. It began by reading newspapers and finding out which clippings were relevant to a client. Today, it's much more about analyzing trends on social media, on Google traffic and other forms of content and weaving them all together into a story which provides insight to our client. So while the tactical evolution has continued and has been refined and probably becomes more sophisticated over time, the ultimate point is to help people. Mm. And in our case, it's helping decision makers have the right information, the right story and the right insight to act upon uh, and take the right approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love the business that, that you've built and uh, we'll get there in a, in a minute. I'd love to kind of understand the journey, you know, leaving university, getting into journalism uh, and the path that led you up to eventually founding the business. Thank you. Well, you're taking me back uh, quite a few years. And I'm I mean, we started at age. 1974, <laughs> so... <laughs> well, now we're probably at 1995, um, which is when I graduated, to late 95 or early 96. And um, as I mentioned, Northeastern was very good, very good learning experience. I actually graduated on time with good grades and um, um, came back to the UAE. Um, I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do, but um, my father uh, was very good friends with the family who own Al Khalij newspaper here in the UAE, the Tadiam family, who have a long and excellent tradition of journalism, political activity, leadership in the Federal National Council. And uh, I went and I met with... Uh, Allah Omran. And um, he encouraged me to try it out. <laughs> um, and he also mentioned they were launching a new English newspaper called The Gulf Today. Um, so I had the privilege of working on both the Arabic Al Khalij and the launch of The Gulf Today, the English paper. And um, it was fascinating. I'd go to interview people press conferences, um, crises, uh, um, all kinds of things you can imagine. Um, corporate, sport, political, social. Um, and again, the ability to help people by telling their stories. Yeah, I found um, inspirational. And there were so many stories and there continue to be so many stories. So if, uh, there's a journalist out there lis listening to the podcast fill up your 
outlet, your blog, your platform, your paper, your TV, with people's stories. I hate opening up local newspapers over here, whether online um, or in print or on broadcast, and seeing so few stories about the people in the country. Mm. I did the opposite. I focused everything on the human story of people in the country. You can fill 100 pages every day by, t- by telling stories, whether you're talking about the story of an individual, uh, a family, an athlete, a company, a government ministry, any constituency. There's 10 million people here and probably a million companies. Every one of them has a story. Every one of them has multiple stories. Um, so I really hope that the journalism infrastructure and ecosystem in the UAE and the region as a whole stop trying to reprint Reuters and AP and AFP and telling us about uh, conspiracies around Imran Khan or Trump, whatever. We need our local stories to come out. And um, I built my business with that in mind. What's the story of my client? Um, but journalism uh, was wonderful. I loved it. I continue to love it. I'm probably subscribed to 30 uh, different media. I still get five newspapers in print delivered to my home. Um, I start my morning coffee by watching a half dozen TV shows and uh, making sure I'm up to date with everything. Um, and it's uh, such a critical part of human well-being, having the right information shared truthfully and accurately and in a timely manner. Uh, definitely a career which I would encourage anybody who cares about information, who, who enjoys writing, video production, and most of all, who enjoys connecting with people uh, to look into. Uh, far more f- fulfilling than being a producer on a TikTok music video. Um, in journalism, you get to tell a genuine story, not to fake it for an advertiser or for a brand. Um, but that wasn't a long part of my career. I remained in Al Khalij for about a year and a half. Um, let's just say salaries were way too low. And back then, there were many challenges in being able to write about what you wanted. Yeah. Um, uh, our ability to uh, think and speak about what we'd like has expanded dramatically over the past 30 years. Mm-hmm. But back then, it wasn't that easy. Mm-hmm. And even if the laws were welcoming of people talking freely. Culturally, if you went to a CEO and said, well, what, what's your profitability? People would say, I can't tell you that. It's uh, confidential information. Right. Yeah. Um, or if you went to um, a government department and said, yeah, there's a problem in that road, um, you know, th- there might be some defensiveness. Or if you wanted to tell the story of a female football player who is 15 years old, the family might not want her picture in the paper. Mm. So we, for a variety of reasons, particularly cultural, people didn't want to share information freely or openly. And when you're a journalist, that's your biggest problem. Yeah. Uh, you could deal with low pay, you can deal with hard work and long hours, but you cannot deal with constantly chasing people just to have them confident enough to share their story with you. That's changed. Today, everybody wants to tell their story yeah. on TikTok There's every over, five minutes. oversharing now. There's oversharing. I guess just, sorry, um, one uh, interesting thing that you said, 
was that to a large extent your version of journal- journalism must start with telling the story of the person um, and that really stuck stick, stuck out with me where did you get that philosophy from? I'm sure I didn't invent it but uh, it's something that comes to you when you're looking at someone talking to them I wanted to do my job really well not just writing properly or finding all of the facts, weaving them together. To do the job well, I had to dig into that person's soul. And the only way you can do that is if you actually care. And to care, you must be, and I hope I am, good at heart and wanting the best for that person. Mm. Um, That helps you create a sense of helping people and wanting to support them even if they don't necessarily help themselves or if they hurt other people. It doesn't stop you from wanting to help. Um, I didn't see it as clearly as I see it today, but I knew that if I cared, that I would be doing something good for that person and for my work. And I think that was the foundation which has allowed me to build on that philosophy and to refine it and make it better over time. But did I see it with the clarity that I see today? Not necessarily, but I certainly felt it. And I think it began with caring and then moving to helping. Which all connects to your higher purpose, which is helping helping people. Mm. So uh, it didn't necessarily work out at Khalij times, but it sounds like it was the foundation for for your journalism career. Uh, What did you do next? Well, I'd say it did work out, but it wasn't enough for me. Okay. And um, I continue to be grateful for that experience and uh, that family, which I hold close to my heart. It's a wonderful family. And now the new generation has taken over and I wish them all the best. Um, But, you know, I think the lesson there would be for journalism organizations to invest in young journalists and keep them for the long term. Um, there's a bad habit in journalism worldwide of underpaying and overworking journalists, even more than other industries. Okay. Um, but empowering them is so important to our society, um, especially in, in the Middle East where stories need to be told. Mm. But uh, I think it was a good transition. It was a good foundation for my career. I met a huge number of people, many of whom are great business contacts today. Um, I developed my early thinking, my ability to plan, my ability to be confident, um, and my ability to write and speak, um, all of which are important. And um, I moved on from journalism into PR and marketing. Um, When you're a journalist, you're often receiving press releases and being invited to press events and press conferences. And the people who organize them are mainly PR companies, PR agencies, or communications departments at the client side. And one of them, a company named Headline Public Relations, um, owned and managed by uh, Sadri Badraj, uh, gave me a wonderful opportunity to work on the Dubai Police account um, because they had won the World Police Olympics account, which was going to be hosted in Dubai. And um, even back then, Dubai was pushing for those big events Mm -hmm. and we were so excited when the police account uh, had won the Olympics and we knew 
hundreds, maybe thousands of policemen from all around the world would come and have their mini sport Olympics in Dubai. Um, and that was the first account I was working on. My second account was a company named Aramex. And I remember writing the press release for when Aramex became the first Arab company to go public on NASDAQ. And that was very exciting. So credit to Sadri, he built a great agency with a very good client portfolio, one which I was very privileged to work on and expand over a four-year period with that agency. And you started looking at things not only from the individual side, the way you saw it in journalism, but from the corporate side. Yeah. What do brands want? Mm. How do they communicate? Mm. How do they treat their own people? How do they create a product? How do they take it to market? Where do they see themselves in the world and in their local, regional, and global market? Um, and my responsibility was to tell that story mm. and to do so by going back to the newspapers and TV and radio, but not as a journalist, but as an advocate for the corporate brand and what they did. So it was fascinating and definitely a very enjoyable time. Uh, lots of accomplishments, lots of fond memories, and definitely one which allowed me to be at the heart of the PR communications and marketing industry in our region. And I'm still here. Did you ever kind of play or toy around with the idea on sh when's the right time to get some Western exposure? And how did you kind of take the, the, the jump to try to expand your horizons in terms of geography? It's a great question. Um, being in the region, you always want to know what's going on outside. Mm. Or if you'd like, elsewhere. Yeah. And... We are naturally part of the Euro-Mediterranean ecosystem. Mm. So we naturally and historically gravitate to the West, which in our case means Europe and America. Um, I'm sure people in China don't think of us as Middle Eastern. Maybe we're Middle Western to them. Yeah, that's true. I never put it in that context. And, um, you know, growing up, uh, all of the Eastern countries in Europe and Asia were behind a curtain, if you want to call it an iron curtain or a cotton curtain or a cultural curtain. It didn't matter, but they didn't have an engagement or a connection with our region the way we did with Europe and America, and to a lesser extent, Africa. So if you wanted your career to grow, and if you wanted to expose yourself to new ideas and people, you naturally went westwards. In uh, about 2000, one of my clients at Headline PR offered me a secondment um, with their Los Angeles office. Uh, the company back then was known as Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture. And they were working on a variety of dot-com projects which would serve the U.S. market and the Middle Eastern market at the same time. And I thought that was just an unbelievable opportunity. Um, that's when I transitioned away from Headline PR to being a full-time contractor at uh, Accenture. Um, I began in Dubai, then I went to California. And um, I have to admit, that was just a fantastic time of learning. Maher Qaddura, who was my first boss in the Dubai office at Accenture, is someone who I learned a huge amount from. And being at Accenture, you really value 
not just technology as a whole and how technology can transform any business or any effort or product, but the dedication to process, putting a plan, mm. making sure your objectives are very clear, assigning accountability, having a roadmap, putting the right kind of milestones. That dedication to process is really what I took from Accenture. What I took from California was the whole tech ecosystem. Back then, we were at the height of the dot-com boom. Yeah. Pets.com, pet.com, uh, PayPal, everything was booming and excitement was so high that technology in general and the internet in particular would change the world. And it did. It just happened that all of the corporate ecosystem, the tech.com ecosystem in California was 20 years too early. Yeah. And that's why the dot-com bust happened shortly thereafter. Companies which were losing money were being valued at $100 billion. It made absolutely no sense. Um, but You're you seeing that today, though. <laughs> you're seeing it, uh, I think, in a different way, but with much better fundamentals. Yeah. And I think we can talk about that in a moment. But my, my learning in California was technology is the only way that you can scale a global business. Mm. And you always have to be at the forefront of technology. And you need to learn it and uh, understand that without having it at the heart of your business, at your product, even if you're a restauranter or if you're um, in a human services-driven industry, you still need technology to be at the heart of your business. And of course, me being a news guy uh, with a career in journalism, then PR and marketing, I could see how technology was going to really reshape everything that we did. I could see how people were putting their advertising on online um, and going to digital yellow pages, is what we called them back then. Um, and I could see how, while I was doing my work, I'd be finding things with the click of a button mm. and start thinking that 400-page yellow page book, which you'd find in every house and every hotel, just seems so obsolete. Yeah, um, yeah I, th I feel like a lot of people nowadays don't even remember the days of <laughs> yellow pages which was literally a book where you'd open up to find someone's phone number right? correct and you know it's i feel like it's easier to look back and say the learning from the dot-com burst was uh, that technology would change uh, change the world i i can imagine at the time a lot of people standing in the midst of the storm took the different perspective, which is this whole technology thing is an overhype and it's clearly not going anywhere. So how did you have that vision and how did you have that clarity at that moment in time to have the view you had versus I would say the conventional wisdom probably was the opposite? I think I was lucky to have many smart people around me who I could learn from all the time. And that's something that I really value listening to people people who are experienced, who are smart, who are dedicated, who are passionate. Um, you don't necessarily need to be with the most successful people. You want to be with the people who really like to learn. They happen to be, most of the time, the most successful people too. And by always trying to learn and wanting to know more, you start having better visibility on the future. Nobody has a crystal ball. But I felt 
that the print newspaper simply would not continue in the way that it was in the 90s and the 80s and for a hundred years before that. And I knew that things like video would eventually have to come through. Back then, technically, it was very difficult. Um, Dial-ups and all of that kind of silliness. Um, Getting video across was not an easy task. You had no real cloud computing. Um, But you could tell that it was just a matter of time before it happened. And you could tell that if there was content on a platform, it would be connected to content on another platform and another and another. And that the transactional nature of it had no limit. Um, You could even build a whole encryption layer and call it blockchain um, for transactional purposes. And the limits remain, in my view, unknown. We don't know how far it can go. But we do know that we need to go down that journey. And that's why it's so important to continue learning. Um, I would never think of myself as a pioneer in technology. But because I'm dedicated to learning, I study the technology. My team will study technology. We're always experimenting. We're always failing. But finding just enough to remain ahead of the market, where we're not too early and we're not too late, but adopting the right thing at the right time. And I think that's the balance that you want to achieve. You don't want to be the pioneer who goes bankrupt because you started too early, nor do you want to be the laggard who waited too long, who hesitated, remained in a comfort zone because there was some good cash flow related to it at the moment. You need to find that balance. And it's not easy, but I think if you learn, learn and learn, listen, listen and listen, study, study and study, you will be in that balanced area and it will serve you well. A lot to unpack there. Um, you know, you said something that's interesting, which is uh, surround. you don't necessarily need to surround yourself with the most successful people, surround yourself with people who like to learn. How do you find those people? How do you um, use them to your kind of, benefit in the context of learning from them you know what are the things you've done to say cool this is someone who likes to learn now let me absorb it's a really good question it's not easy to find them Mm. Um, you have to make an effort you want to begin by being in the forums and meetings and conferences where these people meet Mm. it's been hard during covid but whether virtual or in person which is now coming back I've always been a fan of going to conferences around the world and meeting people. Um, In the room, you'll find the most successful people are on stage. And they're great. But you'll find a lot of learners and educators in the four or five hundred seats in front of the stage. Mm. And that's where you find a lot of magic, which often doesn't go on stage. You meet them at lunch, in networking, um, in the smaller workshops. Mm where you engage and you talk and you think and you create. Not every event is great or a big learning experience, but many of them are. So I would maximize my opportunity to meet people by every other month going to a conference of some kind on a topic that I cared about. It could be technology, media, futurism, media intelligence, um, business best practice, and you find that huge amount of talent that you can tap into. And I've created many friends, partners, 
and business partners through that network of people. Mm-hmm. And it's been incredibly important to my business and my corporate growth by having developed that network over the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I definitely highly recommend it to anyone. Another one would be by doing your homework at home whether you're reading a book or watching a TED talk or going onto YouTube or the Khan Academy you know university no longer is a four year gig you know it's a lifetime gig and you need to be able to go and find the platforms and the content and the educators who are relevant to what you do TikTok has just become an unbelievable platform for learning um i find it to be probably the most important learning tool for me today uh, when it comes to best practice on coding mm. or running a business or investing your money because you're finding brilliant minds who are giving you a daily series of 1 minute tips and that is a really good way of simplifying and absorbing complex knowledge mm. who who are some of your favorite pages or people to follow on TikTok i'm just I I've taken the TikTok jump finally. My, my wife's uh, a big fan of the platform um so I'm just getting up to speed. I feel like that jiddo now, you know, where <laughs> when there's a new platform I I say oh those kids and so I had to quickly snap out of it. I, right. Well, I mean on TikTok uh I I follow a lot of different people. Um for example in my personal life I've decided I can no longer live on uh, shawarma and manaish anymore and I'm very happy to have dropped uh, 15 kilos Amazing. over the past 6 months. So I'll follow very good athletes who teach me how I can be in the gym without hurting myself or exhausting myself. Mm. You know that's yeah. a, a very important part of my life is checking yeah. out what these guys do, learning about nutrition mm. from people who are certified. Mm. Uh, and there's many of them and in terms of investing my money i'm a little bit older now i have savings and there's a lot of advice out there on crypto on investing and so on but i find the old fashioned guys the warren buffett types uh the jamie diamond types mm. giving you a 30 second talk on tiktok to be really valuable and yeah. just back to basics um uh, i find that the sport commentators uh, who are very good at analyzing why something is good or bad in your team um and why you know Juventus is actually in the middle of a huge rebuild and might not win a title for the next 5 years to be very interesting yeah um so i'd say i probably directly or indirectly because the algorithm is so good at figuring out what i want mm. follow a few hundred people at any given time mm. i don't look at everything every day mm. but every day I'd have you know 10 15 minutes in the morning 10 15 minutes at lunchtime another 10 15 minutes in the evening checking out three or four or five creators who bring that content to me many of the names you will be familiar with mm. but the packaging mm. of their knowledge into simple digestible and impactful content is what makes it such a good learning platform yeah Yeah, I'm uh trying to figure it out. So, uh I'm curious enough to to get there. You 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 mentioned about timing um when it comes to to your own business which I'm going to make a conscious effort to uh to get to uh to allocate enough time to get there. Um you talked about 
right timing in the context of not being too early and not being too late. I think a lot of business books have been written about being too late, but there's not a lot of knowledge about being too early. Can you talk a little bit more about how you think of it and how you navigate it? I think the hardest part in launching a product is knowing whether it will be number one in demand and number two, um, whether your stakeholders are ready to adopt it. For example, news live streaming was built in, la- in, in the late 90s, but it was very expensive and people weren't ready for it. It was just too early. We talked about the dot-com bust. None of these ideas were bad ideas. You know, pets.com was a brilliant idea. If it were to launch today, it probably would have done much better. So I think adoption is a key element. What I learned in the dot-com bust was, do people want your product? The answer back then was pretty much yes for most people. Number two, did they have access to your product? And we've learned that in a, in a dot-com or internet environment, you need hundreds of millions, if not billions of people to have cheap and fast access to the internet, which back then we did not have. Millions of people had access to the internet, but it wasn't cheap and it wasn't fast. And three quarters of the world weren't plugged in, which meant that it was mainly a US-European market. Um, Third was, did you have the logistics and supply chain to deliver? And that was a maybe. It depended on each company, and it was pretty mixed in how it looked. But delivery of product wasn't straightforward the way you have the near real-time delivery. You know, we could order a, a cappuccino from Starbucks, and in 10 minutes it's delivered. Back then, you didn't have that logistical backbone to deliver the product. Did you have the customer service knowledge to have the balance of technology knowledge and product knowledge to be able to talk to the client efficiently and effectively to sort out their problem? Back then, it was very hard to find people who could combine those skills. So being a client service representative 25 years ago was much more basic than it is today. Today, a client service rep in Texas, in India, in Malta, there are many general managers. They know so much about a product and they know so much about technology. If I'm calling because I have a problem with my bandwidth at home, the guy at the Salat on the other end of the line, he sounds like one of our product managers. Mm. They're so advanced in what they're capable of doing. The training wasn't there 25 years ago. The training now does exist. The human capital, both in terms of quantity and quality, did not have a full deployment back then. Now it does. The logistics and supply chain has now evolved. And then things like cloud computing have allowed products which may have existed 20 years ago to be researched, analyzed, commented on, and delivered so quickly and that's why companies like mine can now compete with a global client, uh, a global competitor, because we don't need to buy fifty thousand servers. Yeah. Back then, the early two thousands, anyone can build could build an application, but the infrastructure to support it and to scale it was so costly that SMEs were unable to compete. Mm. Thanks to Amazon Cloud, Microsoft Azure, and mm. others, 
that competitive element has been completely dismantled. Yeah. I guess it's easier to comment on some of this stuff in retrospect. Now in your business, when you look forward, what are the factors you look at to determine is this effort we're launching too early? Is it just a matter of trial and error? Or are there other things that kind of go go through your thought process? Really good question. And we have a debate on this every day and with every product that we launched or want to launch. And some of our products fail and many of them succeed. But we do have a blueprint, which I think provides us with a good way of minimizing the unknowns and maximizing our success. One of them would be having a really good relationship with your client. Mm -hmm. Nothing beats showing a new product in beta to a client and saying, what do you think? Would you like it? Can you use it? How much would you pay for it? What value do you think it delivers? There are millions of tech models, AI models, which do that. But in the end, nothing beats sitting down with your top 10, 20, 50 clients, one at a time, or some of them together in a room in a panel discussion and going through the product and sharing it with them. It's gold. And it's a time-proven way of getting it right. Another one would be to benchmark what others are doing. Have they launched it? Are they having success? How are they pricing it? The hardest thing is when you're launching something completely new that very few or nobody has done. And here you have a mixture of intuition. Uh, You have input from data on existing usage on adjacent products. Um, And then you have the trial of demoing it to existing and potential clients. And there's always a danger that people will look at a demo of a new product and say, wow, that's amazing. Yes, I would buy it. And then you take it to them. They're like, actually, I've I've changed my mind or, you know, the CFO won't give me the budget. Um, But that's why you need to ask many people. And the best people to ask are usually CEOs. Mm. Will this change your business? Mm. Will it help your team? If you go a little bit down the value chain and the leadership chain, every step down you take, you you lose an element of truth. Because if the CEO wants it, it'll happen. Mm. If the chief marketing officer wants it, it's likely to happen, but someone might overrule her or him. If you go to uh, the director of infrastructure in the tech department, another level down, very important. It has life, but there are probably four or five people ahead of that person who could overrule it. So always aim to demo your product to the most senior person available in your client ecosystem and in your prospect ecosystem. And Mm. do that as much as you possibly can. Mm. And if we fast forward to kind of the birth of karma, what was the light bulb moment where you decided to become an entrepreneur? I think it happened um, around the dot-com bubble. I was in California, the dot-com bubble burst. And I remember the pain and trauma that countless people in my neighborhood, in my city, were facing because you had modern, young, dynamic, well-paid people living a fabulous life of building the future, all of a sudden coming to an end effectively overnight. And people were in denial. They couldn't actually believe it was happening. And I will never forget how many investors and 
company owners dealt with the situation. It was a black and white, it failed, shut it down, move on. People will lose their jobs, that's tough, that's part of it. Obviously, it, went, it led to a massive recession globally at the time, mild compared to the recessions which happened a decade and then two decades later. But it showed me how investors and company owners had a huge amount of power over a business. And their interests were not always right for the dignity and well-being of the human beings, the people who are in that organization. Their overriding focus on profit and exits was something entirely legitimate from a business point of view, but often at odds with basic humanity. And I felt if I was going to be working anywhere, I wanted to be the master of my own destiny. And I would not want anyone to push me or bully me into buying, selling, acting, building in a way which was good for a banker, but not good for the business. Um, I also felt that in a human environment, you need to treat people the way you want to be treated. And back then anyway, things like working from home, flexible working hours, extended maternity, treating people right, giving them the best health insurance, wasn't part of the culture, even in America. Yeah. And I generally didn't want to deal with that. Um, obviously, being in America was a very eye-opening experience. I felt uh, lucky to have learned a lot. But uh, I wanted to be in an environment which was closer to my culture and closer to the values which I have grown up with. And that's why I came back to the UAE in um, late 2001. Um, and instead of going and looking for a new job, I decided to start my own. And I took a year to think about what I wanted to do um, and to look at my options. I did a variety of consulting projects with all of my former employers, you know, the newspapers, the PR companies, uh, the advertisers, the marketers, the techies. They kept me busy and allowed me to have enough income to save up. But by 2002, I pretty much figured out what I wanted to do. And I thought I had a product which would have um, good demand in the market. And that was basically what's being mentioned in the media needed to be captured. So if you were Rafiq al-Faqih at McDonald's, um, you wanted to know what was happening in McDonald's Kuwait, your dealer would fax you the clippings a week after they were published. And not to mention TV or radio yeah. or the growing number of people on the internet. So I thought, let me find a way where I can provide senior executives with important information about their brand, their reputation, their competitors, and capture it from open source data, or if you'd like, the media. Yeah. And instead of doing it via fax, let me build a modern dot-com style portal, which has a web interface for my admin team to upload stuff from all over the region with automated newsletters and optical character recognition and scanning and digitization and start delivering what matters and quickly and importantly to people. Um, and it began with just a handful of people, but the proposition proved to be a well-received one. So you were testing out that concept idea with, you were using your own philosophy of testing out 
with CEOs, whether or not they'd pay for something like this. Right. That year between my return from California and coming back to Dubai, uh, the half dozen consulting projects I worked on, I would frequently ask, what's your pain point? What do you need? And many of the consulting projects I had were people coming to me with their pain point. One of them was a major corporation who simply had no idea where they were being mentioned, how people were mentioning them, why they were writing about them in that way. And I felt I could do it for them, and I felt I could do it for many others. And that was a very important moment um, in helping me create that approach and uh, beginning what used to be known back then as a company named Media Watch, the predecessor to Karma. I know uh, we could probably spend the next hour just talking about the journey of, of building the business. I guess now when you look back at it, uh, how would you think about some of the biggest learnings from a leadership perspective you've had about building the business? I mean, at this stage, you're still relatively young. You still are relatively young today. Um, and I would imagine you didn't have a ton of leadership experience. You didn't have a ton of building a business experience. And so what are kind of the tokens of wisdom you have from that journey? Well, I think there are many people who have a lot more knowledge than me in that area. I'm still young, as you say. Um, but I, I mean, think, too, sorry, uh, to give credit where credit's <laughs> due, I mean, Karma today is, I think, 400-ish employees. Uh, Karma is about 600. 600, operating in... 19 countries. 19 countries. So it's, it's mashallah, it's done uh, a lot of amazing things. Thank you. Um, I mean, the leadership skills are definitely not skills I learned in a university or at school. Um, they're definitely not things which you have a, a roadmap to. Yeah. Many of them are iterative in nature. And many of them come through failure. One early failure at the company was trying to do too much and saying, all right, let's do our media monitoring in 10 countries. Mm. We didn't have the money to do it in 10 countries, but we thought, oh, we'd do it, and somehow the money would come, and it didn't. So we dialed it back to one, and then back to two, then to three, then to four. That was an important lesson which helped shape me as a leader because I felt and I continue to feel that incremental progress is far better than exponential scalability. Everyone thinks that 20, 50, 500% growth is sexy and it looks good on paper, but it's never sustainable. What is sustainable is your incremental growth. And I look at many startups in our region here in the MENA area where companies have had unbelievable growth in revenue or in traffic or engagement only to collapse shortly thereafter and to lose a lot of value. It costs money. Revenue costs money. And the higher your revenue, the higher your costs. So why not build it one step at a time where you have the ability to absorb your costs very well, not be shocked by them, keep them predictable, manageable, and allow yourself the breathing room to grow at a pace which the market is happy with. 
you can push the market to move more quickly. Mm. But it's far better for you to move with the market than the other way around. So I think that was a key leadership lesson. Uh, I talked a lot about helping people. And every day I'm reminded that how you treat your people is ultimately how well you will do as a company. If you treat people badly, your company will perform badly. If you treat your suppliers badly, your company will perform badly. If you do not protect your team against an unfair or bullying client, your company will perform badly. Treating your people well is a point of principle as well as a point of professionalism. And I no longer am afraid, and I used to be afraid, of fighting back against a client who was a bad client. And there are bad clients, clients who treat your people badly, clients who don't pay on time, um, clients who agree to something and then change and expect it to be delivered for nothing, clients who shout at staff, and we find that to be rampant in our region and increasingly rampant in advanced markets like the US and in Europe. I think as a human species, we're finding people to be a lot more aggressive and a lot more impulsive. And it's increasingly important on the leadership of an organization to protect the well-being and dignity of our people. Do we do it perfectly? No. And I know we have failures across the board. Um, but I think for the most part, we do it well. Um, we should do better. We're always working to do better. And here's another leadership lesson. Always invest in good HR. Always. Um, I always felt, oh, no, I'll be the HR manager. I'll be everyone's friend. I'll be everyone's Habibi. I'll be everyone's partner, mentor. But that's not good. Your team need a neutral party who they can go to. And then you need to remind yourself, do you actually want to grow the business or do you want to be working on leave requests and KPIs and career growth and um, you know company parties and dinners and so on? You need to have a function that's focused only on the well-being of your team, both professionally and personally. And I underestimated that for a very long time. And only in the past five years have we been making an effort to really build a proper HR infrastructure. And in the past two or three, we're actually getting to a point where now, we, between Karma and Socialize, we have roughly 850 people. We actually have about 20 people between admin and HR who can actually interact and engage with people on what they need. But that was a major failure of mine that for over a decade, I thought I could handle the job myself and that HR was basically force of character within me and within departmental leaders who were all very strong and set very good examples and contributed to a very good HR culture and team culture and team spirit. But it wasn't enough. You need the preparation to meet the opportunity, the science behind HR, the technology, the process, the people, the funding. Um, and uh, that's a key element uh, in terms of learning. Um, I think another important leadership lesson would be, um, I, I alluded to this earlier, honesty with the client. You know, always being clear on what you're delivering, the value that you're delivering. Always being clear when you're making a mistake. Be honest about it. 
Um, always be clear that when the client wants something unreasonable, to say no quickly and immediately, mm. not to drag it out. Mm. Especially in emerging markets where we're all holding on to our clients and we're a little bit afraid about upsetting them. Um, maybe it's because we have reached a scale, a scale of revenue that if a few clients went, we wouldn't worry too much about it. But I think clients in our region, especially in markets like the UAE, have become a lot more global, a lot more sophisticated, and have much better governance. And they have a new generation of young leaders in their 30s and 40s who do want to treat people right. Mm. And you're finding that they are much more receptive to honesty and the right kind of value being delivered to them in a transparent manner than being bombastic and uh, show-offy and exaggerative. Um, so these are some of the lessons learned. Obviously, there are a huge number yeah. of them, but there are some of the ones which immediately come to my mind. And I guess one thing that's come out from talking to you, but then just also learning about your business is this uh, in a constant innovative mindset. How do you cultivate that in, in an organization that's 850 people? Again, really important question. I think starting by realizing that you're not a genius, mm. you know, that the innovation cannot begin or end with you. But my job is to help create that culture. To create that culture, you need free thinking for people not to be afraid to share an idea. That's very important. Another, How do you systemize that? that? I think uh, by in involving people in decision making. Mm whether it's small or strategic, tactical or growth-oriented um, or existential, the more you have team meetings where you talk about what should we do and having their voice shape a decision, the more people feel comfortable sharing their ideas and opinions moving forward. And you can see an, an immediate correlation between participation in decision-making compared to top-down decision-making. I found top-down decision-making in my own company where I made the top-down decisions to frequently be mistaken or misguided. And I found that the particip participation in decision-making has usually led to our best results and a happier team. So I think uh, making them be uh, comfortable about uh, being part of the process, them being used to being invited to sharing their opinion and being part of making a decision creates a culture of continuing that ethic. Yeah, no, I completely, that's something I've realized in the past two, three months, I would say, is that the best way to get buy-in and drive autonomy in the organization is to remove yourself from being the person solving the problems and throwing the problem back at the team, just building that muscle and that expectation that they are there to solve the problem. Um, gets the buy-in and builds kind of the autonomy. Um, so it's something I've started to realize very recently. Uh, I guess there's probably no better person to ask than than you. Um, how do you manage the difference between noise and signal signals when you when you look at the media? I mean, I think there's you mentioned about how much information you consume. I sometimes get overwhelmed um it can cause an emotional reaction i've gone through different love hate relationships with media sometimes i'll just go through a hiatus where i say i'm not consuming any media social media news media and so 
how do you, uh, as a person who's passionate about it, but also it's it's your professional line, how do you manage the noise versus signal? Very good question. And we've built a whole company trying to answer <laughs> that question. Um, obviously, with Karma, we have a variety of technology, content, and process uh, tools to help us get there. Yeah. Uh, technology will allow us to capture a lot of digital data from mm. social and the web and from search. Content uh, is captured from social and traditional media. Um, it's originally created. And processes include everything from using the latest machine learning, uh, the latest linguistics, to be able to get the right kind of insight. But ultimately, you need the right kind of human being with the right cultural background, the right sector background, and the right attitude to use all of those technical and content tools and to interpret them in a way which makes sense. Otherwise, you're drowning in data. And you bring up two interesting terms, signal and noise. I prefer to look at them as data and insights. The so data is just your data. It mm. could be structured, it could be semi-structured, it could be unstructured. But it's just a huge world, a massive global lake of data from TikTok, from Al Khalij, from BBC, etc. And you need to be very careful about how you manage what you're looking at and making sure you're looking in the right direction for the right thing. Our technology does a lot of that, but there's a limit to how far the technology can go, whether it's our own technology or technology that we license from Google. There's mm. just a natural limit to how f far AI has come. That limit will continue to get pushed back further and further as it's developed, but the limitations are real, and we should not expect that with a click of a button, we can magically create insight out of all of the content out there. But that second part, after the data, moving it into insight, into meaning, into actionable information, that requires your consultants, your analysts who can interpret the data, weave it together, and then communicate it to your client or to your team in a very effective manner. Um, you know, a Warren Buffett, Buffett clip on TikTok is a great example. There are thousands of his clips from himself or from people who reshare his stuff. But you need to look at the right place. Why go to the thousands of others who are resharing when you can go straight to him? Um, why look at a million different hashtags when you can search precisely for what you're looking at? You can find it on YouTube. Um, so putting your tools to point in the right direction and for them to act quickly and effectively in the right direction is step one. Step two is having conscientious, ethical, smart people interpret the data and then present it in an optimal form, which allows you to separate all of that stuff and to move from data to insights. And on a personal level, how do you manage that? So that's at a company level, but at a personal level, how do you manage, for the lack of a better word, the data or the noise and not let it become overwhelming? Is it easier because this is the business you've built? or I mean, I do have an unfair advantage yeah. in that I get to I'm so to jealous. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be bugging you on WhatsApp from now on. Anytime, yeah. anytime. I have the advantage of full access to all of Karma's systems, yeah. and I can use all of that information yeah. very effectively. But, you know, at Karma, we have a Karma account. Yeah. At Karma, we have a Mazen Nahawi account. 
Yeah. So we have accounts based on what we need to do to do our own homework. Mm. Uh, from my account's perspective, yeah. you know, I look at things which I need to become a better leader, to become a better CEO, to become a better friend and colleague to our team, to become a better client service person, a better salesperson, a better tech person, a better content person. And I'm always looking for good ideas. I'm always looking for what people are experimenting with. That's a key element of what I look for. Um, and it's automatically tracked. And then either I will do the interpretation of that data or in brainstorming sessions, we'll do it together as a team. Mm -hmm. I often want to look at how we're doing in terms of those futuristic ideas and best practice compared to our current work. And then we have a huge range of internal tools from HubSpot and uh, Dynamics and other performance management tools which allow us to compare our satisfaction rate from our clients, which we measure regularly, compared to the best businesses in the world and identify how do we benchmark against them. Mm. From a technology point of view, how does our technology rank? Do we actually make the effort to investigate and research the best tech or not? Sometimes we do and sometimes we don't, but mm. at least we go and we look for it and we talk about it. The one thing that um, is really important is managing your time. Mm. You will always have the urge to look at more and to think about more and to research more, but you need to be disciplined in why you're doing it in the first place. And if you have a clear objective, on Monday I'll do my tech stuff, on Tuesday I'll do my sales stuff, on Wednesday I'll do my client stuff, Having that discipline and planning makes it a lot easier for you to minimize your effort, to minimize the work that you're doing, to minimize the data you're looking at, and therefore to maximize the impact and interpretation towards insight. I wasn't joking when I said that I'm going to be bugging you on WhatsApp, uh, given the treasure cove you sit on of, uh, of data. Uh, I'm a huge data geek. You're going to end up regretting we, we met. Uh, a couple of things I heard you say were, you know, safety and stability really translates to confidence. You know, that really stuck with me. I loved this idea of being honest about your failures, whether it's with yourself uh, or with your clients. Uh, the idea of preparation plus opportunity equals luck is, is timely since I read it today. Um, and I, I'm a huge believer in it. I love this idea of you don't have to uh, be around the most successful people, but be around people who, who love to learn. Um, it's been hugely insightful. You've given me a lot to think about. Uh, uh, and I look forward to just developing my personal relationship with you because I think you're a very kind person, but also a very wise person, which is the best combination. So thank you for being generous with your time and your thoughts today. Uh, very kind words, and I really appreciate it. And uh, very grateful for the relationship, which I'm sure will grow and excited to see your success develop. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.